Hello, this is a special episode of On the Merits, the legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm David Schultz. Today, we're sharing with you an episode from our companion podcast, Uncommon Law. The Uncommon Law podcast is hosted by my colleague Adam Allington, and it specializes in deep, deep dives into the biggest issues facing the legal profession and the country right now. This episode you're about to hear is from Uncommon Law's award-winning series on the issue of diversity in the law. The series is called Black Lawyers Speak, and here's Adam with the story. It's now been over a year since George Floyd's murder and the wave of soul-searching that followed. And still, 16 of the nation's largest law firms, nine of which are on the AmLaw 200, according to a report from the American Lawyer. With that in mind, we decided to put together an extended cut of my January interview with former Attorney General Eric Holder, now a partner with the Washington, D.C.-based firm Covington & Berlin. The interview was part of our Black Lawyer Speak series, which is still available. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. And now my interview with Eric Holder. Uh, as I said before, the majority of this podcast series has been focused on issues of diversity and inclusion as they relate to big law firms or the recruitment pipeline. But is diversity also a topic for the judiciary? And how would you say it's similar or different to what's going on at firms? Well, I think diversity is always a good thing. I think that's one of the strengths of our, our nation. We are truly a nation of immigrants. I think we have tended to forget that. So our immigrant past, I think, is a strength and it is the foundation for um, the diverse present and the diverse future that I think we should have. If you take America and all of its constituent parts and um, involve people from different backgrounds, from diverse backgrounds, whether it's racial, gender, geographic, uh, you end up with the, the best efforts. You, you, you end up with the best of um, who we are as a nation. And so... It matters not only for um, what you see in corporations, um, what you see in the military. Um, it also matters in, in all facets of our life. And, and I think that is true of uh, the, the judicial branch uh, judicial branch as well. At the firm level, I think this issue often gets folded into a business case model. You know, we can provide a better service for our clients if we assemble diverse teams. Is that the right way to frame the issue for the judiciary as well, that diverse benches can produce better legal opinions or results? Or are there other reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think people, you know, judges are supposed to decide things only on the basis of the facts and the law. But we'd be naive to believe that people don't bring their life experiences um, to the job. I mean, I was a judge for, uh, you know, for five years. And uh, I, I dare say that my experiences uh, as an African-American man um, gave me slightly different perspectives than some of my um, my white colleagues. And I, I think that, you know, that's a good thing to have a variety of people from different backgrounds, different life experiences. You know, you, you lead a pretty solitary life um, as a judge. And people tend to think, well, a judge is only deciding cases on the basis of the facts and the evidence in front of him or her. But the reality is that um, judges interact with one another. And we used to, at the D.C. Superior Court, where I was a judge, we had a lunchroom. And that was a great meeting place um, for judges. And judges could only sit with judges at a designated table. 
and we would frequently talk about cases that we were considering. And it was really interesting to hear the different perspectives that different judges had presented with the same facts, um, understanding what the law actually was and the different ways in which they would view a case. And so and I think in those interactions, people were sensitized to different views, um, sensitized to different life experiences. And I think it made us better made it made us better judges than if we were all, you know, from a, a very um, homogenous um, background. Uh, and, and so I, I think there is always value to be found in um, diversity. And I don't think that's a political statement. You know, um, I, I think we've tended to politicize something that I think we can scientifically prove. Um, it certainly helps in, in business. And I, I have to think that when it comes to um, decision-making on the bench, just as I found with regard to decision-making in the executive branch, um, having a diverse set of people um, around me to, to share their views, to share their recommendations, made me a better decision-maker, both as attorney general and I think as a judge. Over the last four years, the Trump administration has moved with remarkable speed to appoint judges. Uh, the last count I saw was 174 district court confirmations, 54 appeals court judges, and of course, three Supreme Court justices. Many progressive groups have also noted that the judges also stand out for their overall lack of diversity. At the district court level, only 17% were non-white, which compares to 37% under your old boss, President Obama. And at the appeals court level, Trump made 54 appointments without a single black judge, um, the, first the first president since Nixon to do that. So I just wonder, how would you rate the track record of the Trump administration here? Well, you know, we were on an arc um, starting at the end of the Reagan administration uh, until the beginning of the Trump administration, where the federal bench was becoming more diverse. If you look at the appointments that Trump made, they are 85 percent white. 76% men. It's, uh, you know, the least diverse group of federal judges, appointments of, to federal judgeships until since um, Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, Trump's appointments have made the federal judiciary less diverse at a time when the nation is becoming, you know, more diverse. Uh, we're on track now. Well, we say, you know, America is going to be, uh, will not have a white majority by 2050. That now has been moved, I think, to 2043 increased numbers of people of color. The courts don't have their chief weapon. The thing that makes courts effective is their perception of them being legitimate by the population that the courts serve. And studies have shown that people tend to believe in institutions, in companies that reflect their world. And again, this is a nation that is increasingly becoming um, more diverse, it's becoming more brown. And to have an administration kind of almost run counter to these demographic changes, um, these demographic trends, which are inevitable, kind of almost like, you know, they, they, these are going to happen, to, to kind of try to turn the, the clock back, potentially robs courts of that, that legitimacy. Um, the courts now are, aside from the military, among the um, most trusted institutions in our, in our society. And you put at risk, you, you put at risk um, that, that sense of legitimacy if people look at the courts and, and see judges that don't reflect, um, you know, what, what the nation looks like. And that doesn't mean that you have to have precise numbers, you know, that actually totally reflect that which 
um, the, the way in which the nation is, is constructed, but some sense that they are you know, roughly in, in tune will, will be something that will, uh, as I say, say, keep the courts um, viewed as, uh, as being legitimate. You mentioned uh, President Reagan, who appointed you to the D.C. Superior Court. Of course, everyone remembers Ronald Reagan for his Supreme Court appointments, the first female justice, the first Italian-American justice, which was actually a big deal at the time. But when you look at his two terms in total, that also wasn't a very diverse group of judges. So I wonder, were you at all surprised when your name was put forth? Well, you know, it's interesting. The process by which judges are selected in, in Washington, D.C. for the Superior Court is is kind of a unique one. Uh, you go through, you apply to a Judicial Nominations Commission, and then three names are sent to the White House, and then the president makes a selection. And it's interesting because of the, the function of that commission has led to the creation of a bench in Washington, D.C. that is extremely diverse. Um, you have judges who are formerly public interest lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, people from big law firms like I, I was as a former prosecutor. And it's also racially diverse and gender diverse. Um, and, and so the names that went up to the White House when, when I was uh, being selected were three African-American men. And so, you know, the Reagan White House had to pick between one of, of the three of us. And I think that, you know, that's in some ways... Um, an example of, of a process that I think probably ought to be replicated, you know, putting before the decision maker uh, diverse slates in the same way that, you know, we have at Covington and Burlington working with the NFL come up with the Rooney rule, you know, that you if you're going to pick a new head coach, you have to, you have to at least interview people of color. Doesn't mean you have to select anybody, but you have to interview people of color. And it's interesting that when you make that um, a requirement, that um, you interview people of color, you interview diverse candidates, you then end up selecting people who are uh, are diverse because it make it pushes people out of their their comfort zones where they only look for uh, people who look like them, went to the schools that they 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 went to. People need to understand that there's not a tension between diversity and excellence. You know, you can have diverse bench a diverse bench. And have nothing but excellent um, judges. They might not all go to, you know, have come from Harvard, Yale, and Columbia. They might not have only come from the northeastern part of the United States, but they're really great lawyers who can be great judges uh, all around the country. I wonder what appealed to you about the job of being a judge. Was this something that you'd always aspired to? Yes, interesting question. Um, I became a judge at the age of thirty-seven, which I think is a little young, and um, my. Intention was having been a litigator in the Justice Department for about 12 years or so. You know, when I was selected as a judge, I thought this was it. You know, I've, I've reached kind of the pinnacle of my, my career. And I thought I would just, you know, be a judge for the rest of my career. Uh, it, it turned out that uh, I became a judge at a time when the crack wars um, were really infesting Washington, D.C. And I had coming before me as a judge in the D.C. Superior Court this ocean of young, this wave of young black men who I had to send um, to jail and had to impose these mandatory minimum sentences that I didn't think were necessarily consistent with their conduct. And I burned out after five years and made a decision to leave the bench and I became then, you know, the U.S. attorney in Washington. So I think that had I been a judge later in my life, 
um, had I become a judge at a different time in our nation's history, it might have been something that um, that I stuck with. But I felt at age 37, I guess to 42, when I was a judge, that um, I was a referee in the middle of a game where I still wanted to be a player. And so when the opportunity arose to become the U.S. attorney, um, I decided to apply for that. Bloomberg Law covered a story recently about the promotion of the first female African-American attorney to chair an AMLAW 100 firm. Um, As someone who is a pathbreaker yourself, you know, obviously the first African-American attorney general, I wonder if you feel that there are more opportunities for African-American attorneys today than there were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Do you feel confident that things are, are moving in the right direction? Yeah, there's no question that progress has been made, and it's easier for the generation now than it was for my generation. Um, you know, they stand on my generation's shoulders in the same way that I st- stood on the shoulders of the generation um, before me. Things are better. They're not yet at the place where they need to be. And, and we still have firsts. You know, we still have firsts. In, in the 21st century in the United States of America, we still have first when it comes to, oh, me, you know, first attorney general, as you were saying, first head of an AMLAW uh, by an African-American woman, head of a a firm. So, you know, progress has been made, but our journey continues. And there are still difficulties. There are still perceptions. There are still stereotypes that have to be, um, that have to be overcome. You know, the notion that African-Americans, people of color are going to be good advocates as opposed to, um, you know, corporate lawyers. They're going to be good in court in front of a jury as opposed to um, not being so great and maybe in an appellate setting. You know, these are, these are, are, are things, stereotypes, things that are unconscious biases that are, you know, un- unfortunately ingrained in, you know, throughout our, our, our society. And we have to be aware of those um, biases um, and encounter them to make sure that people are given the opportunities that they are entitled to. Because the reality is companies, benches, you know, law firms that are aware of these biases and calibrate for them, and they, come, they become better, they become stronger, they become uh, more competitive. And that's just as true. That is just as true of benches. You know, you know we don't think of that, I think, often enough. What's the strength of this particular bench? You know, we're talking about the D.C. Superior Court. What does the D.C. Superior Court bench look like? How strong is that bench? As opposed to, say, maybe, I don't know, you know, the Supreme Court in New York State. I mean, how strong is that bench? How diverse is it? Could it be made better? These are all the kinds of questions that we certainly apply to companies, to corporations, to law firms. And we are asked those same questions about, um, you know, about judicial entities as well. The Biden administration is already committed to nominating an African-American woman to the Supreme Court uh, if they have the opportunity. In terms of priorities, where do you think rebalancing the federal bench will fall? Do you see this as being high on the list for the next president? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that, you know, uh, the president-elect campaigned on. I think he's a man of his word. Uh, he's also a person who's had a, you know, a great deal of experience having chaired the Judiciary Committee. So he's seen what the process looks like. And his commitment to put on the bench a diverse set of people, not just prosecutors and people from big law firms, but public defenders, public interest lawyers. I think that is certainly something that we will, I think we can expect to see from the Biden administration. And I think that's going to be good for, that's going to be good for America. 
But I also think it just puts us back on that arc that I talked about earlier, that arc that was started actually with George H.W. Bush and, and continued, you know, through Republican as well as Democratic presidents, you know, to greater degrees, um, lesser degrees, but on that, on that general arc that was really stopped by and, and reversed by um, these last four years of the of the Trump administration. You'd mentioned that, by and large, the judiciary was still one of the few branches of government that the public has trust in. Uh, Given the level of political polarization that we're seeing these days, I wonder if you see the judiciary playing an even bigger role going forward, uh, you know, keeping the guardrails of democracy in place. Yeah, I I really do. I'm very concerned that in these hyper-partisan times, um, people will look to government writ large, I mean, executive branch, judicial branch, legislative branch. Um, looking for, um, you know, some somebody, some part of, of government to be neutral and to apply, you know, neutral principles in, in deciding things and doing things that is in the best interest of, uh, of the people. And it is why it, it worries me about what happened again over these last four years. But that's in some ways unfair. What has been a trend in the United States where we have politicized the selection of judges and if if the judicial branch is simply seen as an extension of the more political branches, that will ultimately and negatively impact the way in which they are viewed by the, the American people. Um, and, and so we need to have a strong, diverse, neutral bench at the state level, um, at the federal level, uh, to, to maintain that confidence that the American people have in the uh, in the judiciary. And then beyond that, I mean, that is substantively something that we need to have so that we're having judges make decisions not on the basis of ideology or, or partisan views, but on, on the basis of what the facts are, what the law is. And so that when a decision is reported in the federal, uh, from the federal courts, it's not said that, well, they were two Trump judges and one Obama judge. You know, we got to get a, hopefully get away from that so that people simply say, you know, two judges voted this way, one judge voted that way, without any kind of demarcation of, of who the, the president was who, who appointed the judge. Th- those are subtle things. Those are, those are little things about what kind, you know, who appointed the president, what's the nature of the decision. Uh, and it's legitimate. You know, it's legitimate now. But I would hope we'd get to a point over time where that will will not be something that gets reported and people will not perceive decisions as coming from, you know, Obama judges, Reagan judges, um, Trump judges, but simply from federal, from federal judges. And that's what we need to get back to. It's important for our society. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or maybe a question that I haven't asked? No, I mean, I, I guess, you know, what I'd say, you know, if the composition of our courts gets too far out of step, with the composition of the nation. And that is a danger that I think we must avoid, but it's also a danger that we can avoid. You know, if, if we are careful in how we go about the selection process, if we cast a wide net to consider, um, you know, good candidates, irrespective you know, of their, their party considerations and, and, and people of a particular race, um, you can end up with a bench that is as, as strong as it needs to be, that will have the, the trust of the, the American people. You know, the opposite is, is, is a problem, but it's a man-made problem. And it's susceptible, you know, to man-made and woman-made um, um, solutions. We need not find ourselves in a place where our courts lose their legitimacy, but it will, will require some effort. 
you know, because this doesn't this stuff doesn't happen to us as Americans, and we never want to concede this. I think, or too often we're reluctant to concede. It doesn't happen to us kind of naturally. We all carry with us these biases, and this is black folks as well as white folks, Hispanic folks, you know, Asian folks. We we all carry these biases about people and and, and other groups, and we need to recognize that we have these biases and then, um, you know, correct, uh, correct for them. That was former Attorney General Eric Holder speaking with me last January. Holder's interview was part of episode five of our Black Lawyers Speak series, which focused specifically on issues of diversity in the judiciary. If you're interested in going deeper on this topic, I would sincerely encourage you to go back and listen to our previous episodes in the Black Lawyer Speak series, which deal with other important issues such as diversity in law schools or the perspective of female lawyers, as well as interviews with some of the first black attorneys hired at big law firms. Hey, this is David Schultz, audio producer here at Bloomberg Law. Just wanted to let you know we've created a couple new ways for you to interact with us. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other podcasts, please give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 703-341-3690. That's 703-341-3690. We might just use your comments in a future episode. You can also reach out to us by email at podcast at bloomberglaw.com. We're on Twitter at BLaw. We would love to hear your thoughts.